0: Good morning. Um, I've been on the phone with Brother Michael a good bit this week a number of times. and spent a good bit of time talking with him yesterday. And uh, as many of you know, he's, you know, he's been sick, he's had the pneumonia, he's recuperating, recovering. But uh, I want you to understand how, what his concern is for his church and for the church members. And he's most concerned about y'all, and he has to stay home to recuperate. So Y'all remember Michael in your prayers because his number one concern is, is what happens to his people here. And I appreciate him for trusting me this morning to um, try to bring a message to you. And so uh, I appreciate the, the song service, man. I really enjoyed that. And the ministry staff has been very helpful to me here. So I, I'm thankful for First Baptist Church and the people who pull all these things together for us. Some of you are asking, well, how did it wind up that Chris Posey's filling in for Brother Michael? And I'll tell you how this went down. They told Tony, Curse, said go find somebody to fill in for Brother Michael. And so Tony goes out to the barrel and he comes back and he says, Nothing, I don't have anybody, there's nothing there. So they told Tony, he said, well, we're gonna go back and look down in the barrel. So he goes back and he looks down in the barrel, and he comes back and says, nothing, there's, there's nobody there. And they said, well, Tony, what you got to do is get a spatula and reach way down in the barrel and scrape the bottom, you know, put some elbow in it, and, and, you know, find somebody to fill in for Brother Michael. So Tony goes and scrapes the barrel, and he comes back and he says, nothing, I, I've got nobody. So they said, oh, well, I'll do this. Move the barrel and look under it. Surely, under the barrel, there's something there. So he moves the barrel and he comes back. I still got nothing. So they said, "We'll tell you what. Do you roll the barrel over and look on the very bottom. Maybe there's somebody stuck at the bottom of the barrel." And that's where he found me. And that's how it happened. I came on Sunday morning to fill in for Brother Michael. But today's topic is going to be disruption. Um, the LED light bulb is what we have here. On the, on the overhead. The LED light bulb's a better bulb. Okay, at one time, you know, you could go to the store and you bought an incandescent light bulb. It was the only thing on the shelf, it was the only thing to pick from. And the federal government mandated, well, we gotta have something more efficient. And so the marketplace was disrupted and companies tried to design a better light bulb. And you know, for a long time, they promised the fluorescent was gonna be it and, and then this and that and the other thing was gonna be great. But what they finally have developed is the LED light bulb and the prices are coming down. And the thing about the LED light bulb is it is uh, 80% more efficient than the old incandescent. And so when they finally developed this good LED, I mean, you can go of the grocery stores in town and they've converted their fixtures to LED fixtures. Uh, You can look at some of the street lights. I noticed over at Gregerson's, their street lights in the parking lot are LED fixtures. So what happened in the marketplace was a disruption. One time, they all thought they had the market down. It was fluorescent bulbs, and it was incandescent bulbs, and that's all anybody ever needed. But now that the LED has developed into such a good product, it's more efficient, it lasts 25 times longer than an incandescent bulb and costs 80% less to operate it. Now, that's a true force in the market. that created a disruption. Um, the iPod came out in 2001. The iPod, for the next five years, was a disruption in the marketplace. The MP3 player was kind of outpaced by the iPod. What's interesting about the iPod in the next five years, they updated and developed the iPod into a better iPod 12 times in five years. And so the iPod began to cause a disruption in its own market. Everybody had to have the newer, better one. They sold millions and millions of iPods. But it was truly disruptive. And then what happened to the iPod? You know, it's out of date now, right? I mean, some may still use them, but... They're really not selling any iPods anymore, so what replaced the iPod? What disruption replaced the iPod? The iPhone, the smartphone. Yeah, and it soon became the iPad and the iPhone began to replace their own product again, but it was either they compete with their own product or the marketplace will. And so Apple continued to produce something that kept replacing the last thing they just developed. And some of it had just kind of a blinding pace and so the smartphone began to replace that. Henry Ford, I'll go back in history to another disruptor. Henry Ford built this car. This was called the quadricycle. And it was hand-built and it was built in 1896. Um, and get this, I'm kind of impressed when somebody builds a, a street rod or he does an antique car, or they build a race car to go down the dirt track and race. I'm pretty impressed with that. But they can get on the phone and order every part they need. Henry Ford built this car from scratch. He used bicycle tires. He built a two-cylinder engine from scratch. Nobody really ever built that engine. And it would go 20 miles an hour was a two-cylinder engine, and you said the steering wheel had a tiller. You turned the front tires with a tiller. After that, in 1901, really just a few years later, five years later, the top speed on that quadricycle was 20 miles an hour, but five years later, in 1901, Henry Ford built the Ford 999. And that car set the land speed record. And it went 91 miles an hour and broke all records. They toured it all over the United States so that he could begin to brand the Ford name synonymous with automobile manufacturing. And so he used this car. What's interesting to me is no sooner than the car was kind of invented, what did they start doing with it? They started racing it, like, immediately. And Henry Ford even said that, you know, I can't prove the value of an automobile unless I race it. And he didn't even like racing he thought it was a stupid you know, process and the whole thing was ignorant. But he said, I can't prove the worth of my auto without racing it. So he raced it. Uh, in 1908, just a few short years later, the Model T was developed by Henry Ford. And it disrupted manufacturing of every market. It disrupted automobile manufacturing, but it also disrupted the way manufacturing was done completely and totally. He built 15 million Model T cars. When he started the Model T, the average American could not afford an automobile at all. The automobile was just a curiosity who was owned by the wealthy because they're the only ones who could afford one. And his whole idea was I will develop a way to manufacture this Model T in such a way that the average everyday worker can afford an automobile. And 15 million cars later, I mean, he had, he had done that process. He changed, he invented or kind of refined the assembly line. Nothing had ever been manufactured like this on an assembly line before he did. And that's how he got the price down was through the efficiency of the assembly line. Another disruption he created in the marketplace was to raise wages for his skilled workers. And that day was kind of a dark ages in manufacturing. If you worked in a plant, you worked for very low wages and very poor conditions. And Henry Ford said, if I'll raise the wages, I can get the best mechanics in my place building my cars. Because he was in Detroit, and there were Dodge Brothers and other people. Cadillac was already in place. All that was going on. And so he said, I've got to compete for the best worker so that my efficiency is there. And so he raised wages. He doubled wages. He cut the work week down to 40 hours. First he went 48 hours, and then he went to 40 hours. He improved the workplace so that you know, people could come in efficiency and safety and build the Model T. So he disrupted everything. What happened when he raised wages? Anybody who wanted to compete with him for the qualified skilled workers had to raise their wages. Was that a disruption? Did that change the marketplace? It was a huge disruption. And so everything he did really all through his life, he was kind of like the leading edge and always creating disruption. World War II, he began to manufacture airplanes for the war and he was putting out one airplane every 58 minutes. He developed an assembly line and a process For that kind of speed, it was amazing. So who are our modern-day innovators that create disruption? I mean, y'all probably already got a couple of names in your mind. Somebody shout one out. Who's a creative innovator that's put a product out in the last 20 years that's changed the way we do things? Who? Steve Jobs. Jobs, Apple, iPhone, exactly. Steve Jobs changed the market with the iPhone. I mean, I used to have the flip phone thought it was cool. And when I was going to text somebody, some of you aren't old enough to remember the flip phone. But when I went to text somebody, you know, you'd have to hit each letter three times, you know, to get the letter you wanted. If you wanted a capital, you had to go through some more. And so, you know, it was kind of a slow process, but we thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then you could take a picture on that flip phone, and it was tiny. I mean, it was little. And he came out with the iPhone, totally changed the marketplace. The smartphone then began to develop, and all the competitors had to compete with what he did. he disrupted the marketplace once again, raised the level with the iPhone. And so um, another innovator we might talk about is Bill Gates. He changed the way we communicate. He changed the way data was stored. Uh, You know, it used to, though, mainframe computers would be as big as the choir loft. But he developed a personal computer, and there were others in his industry who were innovators in that mainframe system said, why in the world would anybody want a computer at home? They said there's no market for that. There's nothing there. He said, we're going to produce a personal computer the PC. And he invented the uh, operating system off of it. And then when Windows 95 came out, it really changed uh, the business landscape. Everybody had to have an operating system like that to compete. You know, and I, I thought about this. Before the comp- personal computer was out, technology was very expensive, very, very expensive to have technology in your workforce and in your staff. And people like, I even thought about the old Carol Burnett show, and you would have Tim Conway. And uh, Mrs. Wiggins, and he would say, you know, come in here and, and, uh, to transcribe a letter for me. And she would walk in there and use shorthand. I mean, do they even teach shorthand anywhere anymore? Probably not. And she would use shorthand, listen to what he wanted to write, and then she would go type a letter on the typewriter and then mail it. You know, did email replace that system? Did that disrupt the need for some employees in the office place? Because now the, they can just sit and put it on their computer and send it out on email instantaneously. So all these things create disruption. In 95, when Windows 95 came out, every business and every organization said, well, we've got to have a website. Now we can host a website. We've got our PCs. And we need a website so people can find us and read about us and see what we do and who we are. And they used a website for that. Um, what's going to replace the website? What's the next greatest thing? I met a guy in Jacksonville the other week named Peter McConney. And Peter is an app programmer. So when you see an app on your phone, he has the ability to program a custom app. And the cost of doing this is very, very reasonable. And he developed an app for the Coupe de Ville, the chicken wing place down in Jacksonville. And what can you do on that app? So with one app, you just hit the app. It opens their menu. You can file through the menu. You can select the chicken wings you want. And then you place your order. And it's sent wirelessly to their printer in the kitchen and they pull out the order, and then you pay on that same app. Now, how much quicker and simpler and easier is that transaction taking place? You know, will we see the website replaced by the app? I think we'll see a lot of that in the near future. So everything creates a disruptive force. Every new item, every new thing creates a disruption in the marketplace. Now, on a personal level, about July 1987, I had a disruption take place in my life. And uh, we were behind the Napa store, matter of fact, in the parking lot. And uh, I saw this blonde headed girl, the lovely Tina Pace. And Tina and I, I was looking at her already, she wasn't looking at me yet. And then she spun around and looked at me, and she gave me that old smiley eyeball. You know what smiley eyeball is? It was where your eyes meet and you smile at each other. She gave me the smiley eyeball, and right there, right then, we had a moment, and it was a moment in time. Let me tell you, and to this day, I haven't forgot that smile, and that chance encounter, and uh, you know, we married a couple years later. Not well, 1988, one year later, and that changed my life. That created a disruption for me. It changed who I was with all the time. It changed you know where I went, what I did. My concerns changed. Everything about my life changed when I found my significant other. And to this day, it's still the most important relationship in my life, right? So that moment created a disruption that changed me for a long time. I mean, till today, all the way through. And it was a very important moment in my life. My kids would have to agree because without that moment, they wouldn't be here, right? So... How do we tie disruption in to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we look at that? I chose Acts 17, um, verses 1 through 6, for kind of a, a point to talk about the disruption of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and the three Sabbaths reasoned with them for three weeks from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking uh, along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren from the city before the city authorities, shouting, "These men who have upset, or turned upside down. The entire world have come here also, or come hither." Then which takes you read. Jesus Christ is a disruptive force. When you hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit convicts your heart of your need for that Savior, Jesus Christ, it's not supposed to be easy. It's not going to be easy. When somebody shares with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, you might ponder on that for weeks on end. You might respond immediately, but you will not forget it the day the question came to you Do you know Jesus? Is He your Savior? Has that blood washed your sins away? Are you whole in Christ? You'll ponder those thoughts over and over and over in your mind. I know I did. When I first heard the gospel, I dwelled on it. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I could not quit thinking about it. It created a disruption in everything I was and everything I could be and everything I could think because that's who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit comes to your heart and convicts you of your sin It says, you need a Savior, and it is a disruptive force. When Paul went about preaching, we see what happened here. What did he do? He went to the synagogue for three weeks, and he preached the gospel among the Jews. Now, the Jews had their way of doing things. They had their religion. They had it like they liked it. But God had decided that it's time for a new way. We call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus Christ split our Bible in half. He, He disrupts it. And we today come to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they came to God through the priest and through the sacrifice. But what did they call Jesus? The once and for all final sacrifice. It's like the speed in which we change data now. Changes our forgiveness. Changes our avenue to God. That same speed, is what I'm trying to say, When used to in the Old Testament, we'd have to go to the priest. and We'd have to bring a sacrifice and they would offer that sacrifice to God in worship. And that sacrifice would give us atonement for, you know, a period of time. It wasn't once and for all final. They would have to sacrifice again and again and again. And it's kind of like that slow data process where somebody was typing a letter and sending it in the mail, okay? And it'd have to go through all the channels of the U.S. Postal Service, and then it reaches the recipient. And it was like that. In the Old Testament, I don't mean they had mail, but you know what I'm saying. The forgiveness was a path that was likened unto that. They had to go to the priest, they had to do the thing, they had to do it over and over again. And when Jesus Christ came, he changed. He disrupted their religion. God had decided it's time to disrupt that religion. You know, there's many reasons for it. If you study the Old Testament, you'll see. They had just become a form and a formality and a legalistic society, and they had it like they liked it, and people were enriching themselves From the from running the temple. You know, Jesus went in and turned over the money tables. Wasn't that a disruptive thing to do? He went into the very house of worship, turned everything over, ran everybody out of there, and said, What y'all are doing is all wrong. And then he, through his shed blood, set up a new way and a new covenant, a once and for all final sacrifice. Now, once we're saved, we're just called to worship. We're called to tell. That's it. We don't go back and say, forgive me once again for my old life. We become a new creature. And it's a disruptive force. Now back to Paul. He's preaching in the temple. And he's proclaiming what? That Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he died for our sins. That his blood changes us and washes us and cleanses us and presents us before God as a holy vessel. That's different than the way it was. Some people thought, wow, that's incredible, and they joined right in. We even see in this text that many followed. Jewish people followed. Greek people followed. They followed. They believed. They heard the word of God, and they believed, and they were changed instantly, but we see that the old guard said, no, this guy's crazy. He's turning the whole world upside down, and they formed an angry mob. How many of you look at the news these days, and you see the angry mob, you know? It's just a group of people, they're angry, they're, they're burning things, they're throwing things, they're threatening people's lives. This mob was just like that. I'm just trying to paint a picture of it for you by describing it that way. The angry mob were going to get Paul and Silas, and they were either going to beat him, stone him, or kill him. And I want you to look at what a man Paul was. No matter what they did to Paul, he persevered, he pushed through, and he preached that gospel. No matter what they did. Let's read in 2 Corinthians 11 24. I'll just catch it for you. You can flip there. Paul's writing says, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times they tried to beat Paul to death. 40 lashes was considered a death sentence. So what's 39? What's 39? You know, you might die at 39, 40 is going to kill you. Five times they beat Paul. For preaching the gospel. What a disruptive force Paul was. He never quit. What a man he was. He said, I'll take that beating and I'll go on and I'll follow my master and I'll preach that word, and nobody's gonna stop me. And if you kill me, fine. He even know, was known to say that I'll just if you kill me, I'd just be gained for me. Let's read on. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three once I was stoned. No, wait a minute, I was stoned three times, pardon me. I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. So they beat him with rods. They stoned them. Now, let me tell you, you can pull up video of people being stoned today. Google it. People over in the Far East are doing that today. And when you're stoned, it's not they hit you a couple rocks and leave. They kill you. It literally, they want to stone you to death. And if you might escape, but you probably won't. They did that to Paul. He kept pushing onward. He had been changed by the blood of Christ he said I'm just not gonna quit I'm gonna preach this word because God called me to preach it I'm gonna do it it didn't matter what they did to him said in my frequent journeys I have been in danger from rivers from bandits in danger from my countrymen and from the Gentiles in danger in the city and the country and in danger on the sea and among false brothers very dangerous to live in Paul's shoes it would have been pretty easy to maybe go down to Caesarea, maybe somewhere on the coast, and just kind of take it easy for a while. But he traveled. He paid his own way by the work of his hands, and he preached the gospel everywhere he went. He was a disruptive force. How is Christ himself a disruptive force? Luke twelve fifty one and 53. Do you suppose that I come to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members of one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's Jesus saying? These are the words of Christ. I ain't come to unite. There will be division. To simplify, I struggled with this scripture many times. First time I read it, like, wow, yeah, I thought God was love. And wow, I thought this and I thought that. And I thought the scripture says, honor your father father and your mother. And I couldn't reconcile it for many years. But as simple as this. He's saying that choose Christ even if your parents don't. Choose Christ even if your sister doesn't. Choose Christ even if your brother doesn't. It doesn't mean you can't ever speak to them again. But you have become something they are not. And it wants you to, the, Jesus is saying, choose salvation even when your other family members don't, even when other kids at school don't, even when your closest friend doesn't. Choose Jesus, no matter what the cost, no matter what's going on, no matter who does and who doesn't, no matter if you have to walk down front, no matter if you led to the Lord somewhere else. It doesn't matter. Choose Jesus. He said it might divide you up with people you know and love, but you can still love them. But you are now something they are not. You are born again, and if they haven't chosen, they are not. You know, the scripture, that's what scripture says. These are the words of Christ. It's, it's a tough word. But if you're to be saved for all eternity, you have to make that choice. The choice is yours to make. The main disruption I've ever experienced in my life, 1988. No, it wasn't 87. Pardon me, I got my time wrong. I'd begun dating the lovely Tina Pace, and started going to church with her at her home church, Daily Street, right over here on the other side of town. I heard the gospel preached. The Holy Spirit convicted my heart. Weeks on weeks on weeks, I'd made no move to accept this Savior that I already believed in. I believed there was a Jesus. I believed there was a God. I believed the Bible was, you know, fairly accurate. I didn't know that much about it, but I wasn't positive. It didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was would I believe the gospel? Would I believe that Jesus Christ was the only way to get to God in heaven to be with the Father? To live in heaven for all eternity? Did I believe that? And I did. But I hadn't accepted yet. So this conviction settled in my heart. I dwelled on it day and night. I wondered was it real or is it just something I'm thinking? I wondered what's going to happen. I don't know what to do. It was total disruption. It's not easy to make that decision. See, a lot of people want to how will feel good stuff on, on religion. That's great, man. I feel great that I'm saved. I feel great when I worship God like we did a few minutes ago. I feel great when I do that stuff. It's fantastic. But when something disrupts your life, my mom and dad weren't in church. My family wasn't in church. I had to decide, how's this going to affect everything? How's this going to change everything? It disrupted my thought process. I had conviction in my heart. I had to make a decision. You know, one day, bang, I finally did it, sitting in church. I heard the gospel again. The invitation was called. I knew it was time, and I still held back, and then finally, some people kind of flowed down front, I looked at who they were, and I thought, wow, if they could go down, I can go down. I knew God was calling me. I knew it was my time. The disruption process was about to be completed, and I moved forward, and I got in that altar, And I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive my sins. It's just that simple. I didn't know what else to say. I didn't know a lot about prayer. But more than anything else, I just weeped. God called me, and it was an emotional experience when I finally let him break through and change my life. It wasn't easy. It was the best thing I ever did. It was the greatest disruption I'll ever experience. It was the greatest change I could ever have. Nothing else could ever change me like that did. You know, when the Holy Spirit came to fill my heart, It changed the way I thought. It changed what I thought about people. It changed what I thought about issues. It changed everything about me. I had a hunger and a drive for the word of God. I wanted to be around God's people. I didn't have any of that before I got saved. You know, I was going to church because Tina asked me to go. I told you how I felt, man. I was going to go anywhere she asked me, right? But that's what happened to me. Has this disruption, has this disruption, where Christ is calling your heart, happened to you. Have you had that day? Have you had that experience? Have you received him? That's the question we'll ask if y'all come forward with the the verse of invitation. Is Christ calling you, this disruptive force, Jesus Christ, calling you from who you are to who who he wants you to be? We have our ministers down front. We'll help you. We'll take the word of God. We'll show you what this means even more or if you're just in that state where you're just going to come to the altar because it's time to pray, it's time to redo something in your life, it's time to pray about others, whatever you need. The invitation's open. Come forward and pray. Let's stand, please.